0: If you begin to do avoiding behavior, if you begin to have very strong reactions to something disproportionate that happens in your life, if you begin to not be able to express how you feel, if you have some irrational fears that you say, why am I so afraid of things? So there are certain signals that tell you, okay, this is a trauma response. And we have the typical trauma response of fight, flight, freeze, and fawn.
1: Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so happy to welcome Dr. Edith Shiro to the My Fourth Act podcast. Edith is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Miami. She specializes in trauma and post-traumatic growth. Edith is the co-founder of the Trauma and Resilience Center. She's a board member of the World Happiness Foundation and an active member of Cadena International, providing humanitarian and disaster prevention worldwide. She's a sought-after guest on many television shows, podcasts, and radio programs, but one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you right now, Edith, is because your extraordinary book, and I'm going to use this adjective revelatory because I think it was that for me and it will be for other people, with the stunning title, The Unexpected Gift of Trauma. The Path to Post-Traumatic Growth is just out this week. Hi, Edith. (laughs)
0: thank you I love that passion and enthusiasm because that's the way I, I do things and how I wrote this book and I'm very very happy it's coming out very happy to be sharing with you my very very good friend Akim, yes. who by the way you are in yes. this book just so you know your name thank is you. in this book yes I'm very proud to share be- that with you
1: before we continue gushing forever I just want to say to the audience Edith and I obviously know each other and we hang out in a community that celebrates happiness around the world. And we've been on some trips to very beautiful places, which makes it actually doubly meaningful to me that you write a book about trauma because people can easily think, well, if you've had trauma, happiness will elude you. You can't find it. And because I know a little bit about your story and I ask this question of all guests, but especially with you, you grew up in Venezuela, who did you think you wanted to be when you grew up as a young girl?
0: I appreciate that question very much. And according to my childhood friends, who I'm still to this day very, very close with, to my kindergarten friends, uh-huh. I was the psychologist of the school, apparently. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Why,
0: why and, does that not surprise me? Yeah, exactly. I love talking to people. Everybody, the outcasts, the outliers, the people that nobody talked to, and the other everybody else. And I think I always wanted to be a psychologist or a doctor or somebody like really in the helping place. And it really resonated with me. I think it's. I don't take credit for that so much because I think coming from the history. And the story, both experiential and uh, genetic, that I carry with me, you know, like physical, emotional, and even spiritual from my ancestors. I think this was the thing to do, you know, that I've always wanted to to be a psychologist. I can tell you, if I wasn't a psychologist, I know I would be, and I probably was at some other time in life, uh, an artist, a musician, or something playing in the streets, you know, with my guitar. That singing and playing, for sure, I can totally be that as well. <laughs> so
1: Since you mentioned your ancestry, you write very lovingly and movingly about your grandparents, Nana and Lalu, who uh, are both Holocaust survivors. And one thing I want to invite you to talk about because you, you tell their stories and describe how each lived with their trauma in a different way and in a way it's a wonderful introduction to post-traumatic growth would you describe both of them to us i know you love both of them dearly but each had a different way in which they worked with the trauma they
0: had yeah no they are my teachers in life among others that i have and i love them very much and they i learned from them how to overcome trauma and each of them in very different ways so in the same way that my grandmother was is an concentration camp, Auschwitz, and many others, unfortunately, I I grew up listening to those stories. I also saw her get stronger and be in a place where she continued life. And she married, had children, moved, learned, went. But there was this underlying current of sadness that was very pervasive in her life. And that she didn't give herself the permission To enjoy life, I think, because she was always carrying that trauma with her and, you know, who who could blame her? I mean, I, I I, I kept asking myself how people live after going through war, after Holocaust, after genocide, after like extreme adversity. At the same time, I saw my grandfather, who also went through the same thing, who also is a survivor, who also... His joy for life and his, like, curiosity, his spirituality, his, like, always wanting to uh, discover new things in life was, like, contagious, you know, and he really had this connection with something bigger than himself. And, like, he, you know, he loved writing. And actually, one of my inspirations is his autobiography. Like, he he wrote about himself and about how he created this family and this, you know, legacy. With him, and and that was so inspiring. And for me, that was such an example of post-traumatic growth, and like how you turn something around completely in a way that it does good to you and does good to others around as well. So,
1: your you just spoke so eloquently about how he, he, both your grandparents went through a horrific experience. But one thing I appreciate so much about your book is that you. You do a wonderful job describing that we experience trauma in many other ways that are not necessarily as dramatic as what your parents experienced. You also use yourself as an example of the ways in which you've experienced trauma and you were not in a concentration camp. Would you just talk a little bit about and maybe just use you as an example, your story? What are some ways in which you go, these are things I experienced as I lived in Venezuela, I came to New York, that... I now as a psychologist, understand are traumatic.
0: Yeah. And we have to be careful with that word because, you know, trauma, some people just use the word trauma left and right, and not necessarily everything is traumatic. And part of, you know, me writing this book is to clarify that trauma, first of all, is a bigger um, concept than what we used to Use in the past, which was just huge adversity, you know, that completely destroys your life. Now mm. we know there's big T trauma, small T trauma, right? So we can have big T trauma as uh, Ukrainians, refugees that are going through like whatever they're going through or uh, Syrian refugees or somebody losing a loved one in an accident. You know, those are huge traumas. There's small T traumas such as divorces, changing countries breaking up with your friends, bully, being bullied, those are traumas too, but not, you know, even like even smaller traumas than that. But we have to be careful because not everything that is difficult or that is sad necessarily is traumatic. Also, not everything that is traumatic ends up in PTSD in post-traumatic stress disorder. So we don't have to develop a diagnosis because we go through something traumatic. So we have to keep that in mind as well as knowing that trauma is a very subjective concept in the sense that what I define as traumatic for myself might not be traumatic for you. So the example for me is that, yes, I moved from one country to another, but that wasn't traumatic for me. Not necessarily. It was difficult. I have examples of microaggressions. I have examples of rejection of like adjustment. Yes. But that didn't define me as a traumatic experience, as a big T trauma for other people that I've worked with in my office that I see, Moving from one country to another, even if it was voluntarily, it was very traumatic and because of the different circumstances. And I talk about different floating factors that affect this difference. So we have to see how we each of us define what is traumatic for us.
1: So is it really that subjective? Or let me play with it. Subjective in the sense that it's a trauma because I want to use layman's language because... I have shut down as a human being and my soul is not fully expressing itself anymore. Is that sort of the manifestation of trauma or help me figure right. that out.
0: Right. So let's yeah, let's let's figure that out because one of the key uh, signals of what trauma is is when you're faced with an overwhelming experience that you don't have tools yeah. to deal with. So when you whatever you understand about yourself or about the other your relationship with the other, or about your relationship with the world no longer no longer works. So if I thought that living in the United States was a safe place, that we weren't going to get any major events and all of a sudden the pandemic happens and then I have to be in isolation and then I have to you know, go through very difficult situations collectively, let's say, then my understanding and my beliefs about me in relation to the world that I live in no longer work and that can be very traumatic for other people that have a more expansive let's say understanding of life or have a different belief of the world the pandemic might not have been traumatic so they you know for other people as we know being in isolation or being confined or waiting to see what happens with or, or not being afraid of or being contagious with the COVID was not so traumatic. And people were like, okay, I'll deal with it. I'll adjust and I move on. And then you see that in symptoms in your everyday life. If you begin to do right. avoiding behavior, if you begin to have very strong reactions to something disproportionate, that happens in your life. If you begin to not be able to express how you feel, if you have some irrational fears that you say, why am I so afraid of things? So there are certain signals that tell you, okay, this is a trauma response. And we have the typical trauma response of fight, flight.
1: Because your book is called The Unexpected Gift of Trauma, and you talk about post-traumatic growth, which which you describe as one of the three... Possible outcomes of trauma. And you mentioned PTSD, which is, I want to layman's language is, you are totally paralyzed in a severe way. Resilience is a middle path where we, I would say we function quite well, but a certain freedom or sense of joy may elude us. And post-traumatic growth, as I understand it from reading your book, it, it is out of something that looked horrible I've been able to turn it into something that while I don't celebrate the past, it's become a positive force in my life now. Do I sort of get got yeah. that right? No,
0: you read it really well. I'm impressed.
1: Then I'm glad I wanted to summarize it for our listeners. Because I'd like to focus on post-traumatic growth. And somebody might listen to me right now, and I'm just reflecting back what I read. And I said, Well, Akeem makes it sound so easy, but is that actually attainable? Or is that just a fantasy or delusion? You know, would you speak to people who might be cynical about the possibility of that?
0: Yes, no, no, no. And that is part of the criticism that happens with the research on post-traumatic growth that some people say oh, really, post-traumatic growth is just people talking about how they do so much better after something so difficult, but it's just how they talk about it. Nothing really happened and their transformation doesn't really happen. And that's valid. And that's valid to incorporate that. And there might be some people that are like that. What I've seen in my experience with my patients and in my own life over more than 25 years is that the very thing that makes people suffer and be in pain and go to the darkest journey of the soul is the very thing that propels them to dimensions and places that are so high and so rich and unattainable in some ways, in any other way. What I keep hearing over and over from people that achieve post-traumatic growth or that get to this stage of post-traumatic growth is that I don't wish this on anybody, but I'm so grateful that this happened to me because I could not have been who I am if this didn't happen to me. So that's the difference between overcoming something difficult and yes, you become resilient or you already are resilient and you have the tools to overcome something difficult. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful and great. And you can even have joy with that. You know, that's fine. It's just that it takes a journey, like a deeper journey with a lot of work in a process to get to this other place which is almost like a newer place you discover things about yourself about your relationships with others and about the world that really opens up new possibilities and that's why it's so exciting and that and i would even say not just emotionally and psychologically but also spiritually you know it's like you get to a different place
1: with this well one of the gifts of your book is that you have this i think very common sense and accessible five-stage framework that says if again for anybody who's listening to go cynical post-traumatic growth like you just made it clear no you got to put in some work to get there and if i may just read out the five stages that you describe them and then we'll talk about them some more it's stage one you call it the stage of awareness and i love afterwards which is radical acceptance and i want to talk about that stage two the stage of awakening, safety, and protection. Stage three, the stage of becoming a new narrative. And I get chills just reading these because uh, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about my own journey in life as I'm reading these out loud. Stage four, the stage of being integration. And stage five, the stage of transforming wisdom and growth. What is it that we have to radically accept?
0: Right. I love that question. Thank you for asking that. Because in order to enter this process, and this is not a process that I invented, is this what I've observed over and over and over. I'm just describing even some of the things that I've seen over and over. Is that until the person doesn't pause for a moment and says, okay, who I am, where I am, And what's going on and really looks at it, looks at the monster in the eye, you know, and really looks at himself or herself or the thing in the eye and say, this is who I am, or this is what happened to me, or this is what I've become, or this is the addiction that I have, or this is what I keep doing over and over and name it, even this process doesn't begin, or at least in the way I've seen it. because. We are so good at avoiding conflict. We are so good at dissociating from pain. We are so good at filling out that void in our lives with addictive behavior. We all do it. We all do it at some form or another. So when we can really actually pause and look at this in the eye and say, yes, I accept it. I radically accept that this is what I do. I radically accept this is what I have or this is who I am right now in this moment doesn't have to define me forever, but this is who I am right now. Yeah. We cannot really deal with it, you know.
1: A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans, And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. You use the language, this is what I do. But what I was thinking about from my own life (laughs) as a gay man who was around in New York around HIV and AIDS when I was in my early 30s and a lot of my friends were dying. So that was something that's happening around me. I wasn't doing it to myself, but those were the circumstances. Like you can sort of try to pretend it's not happening, or you can pretend like you're okay with it. Right. But we all knew it's really not okay to go to funeral after funeral. And this is traumatic. And I think the beginning point to moving forward in a meaningful way is saying, this is actually not okay. And I'm... Right freaking pissed about it and I have feelings about it and then you go from there, right?
0: It happened. It's not like something you did, but it happened to you, meaning like you were losing people. You were experiencing that feeling of loss over and over. And even uncertainty and even fear. You know, what if it happens to me? So those are things that did happen to you. And until you say, Okay, this is what's happening. I am experiencing loss after loss and it's not okay Yeah, you know then you keep moving forward
1: and the other part i want to say we're not going to spend the whole conversation about my life but what's interesting you got fast forward over 30 years later you know and i've done loads of therapy i've done loads of spiritual journeys i so i've done my work i have a i'm blessed to have a really good life and that sadness and loss doesn't ever go away. It hasn't stopped me, but it's not like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal or or whatever. No, yeah. you sort of integrate yeah. that experience as part, yeah. this was my journey in life.
0: Exactly.
1: You talk about yeah. in the second stage, about the stage of awakening, and I love the words safety and protection. My mind, it goes to, I find somebody where I can trust who can be my my guide, my confidant, my safe place. So so I don't hold in whatever is troubling me inside. Am I reading that correctly? That's
0: perfect. You're yeah, I'm appreciating that because you we can even use your experience as an example of post-traumatic growth. And you're such a perfect example of that, Achim. I think you you really embody that that transformation. So the second stage of of safety and protection is knowing what I know about myself and putting a name to it, how do I become vulnerable enough to share this with somebody in a safe space, yeah. in a place that I can be contained with all my emotions and all my feelings and all my fears and all my doubts and be able to share it, obviously, with somebody that can be give me guidance or that can help, hold me or that It it can be your therapist, but not only. It can be your yoga teacher. It can be your pilgrimage into the mountains. It can be your best friend. It can be your family. I mean, everybody has a different way, but it's sharing it with the other. It's not just you with yourself. It's being vulnerable enough to put it out there. For what? In order to transform it.
1: And what I was thinking as you're talking, when I'm in a resilience mode... Again, this is my lens. My MO is I will power through it alone, damn it. Mm. Right. And, and the moment I allowed others to help me, and, and I, I joke, I get help for absolutely everything. You know, <laughs> I told you, I just saw my acupuncturist before we were recording, so I'm in a very good state of mind. But my life gets better when I can show myself in safe places all over the place and allow other people to come in, right?
0: absolutely it's such a grateful thing to have you know it's like grateful all the time to have people around and to count on a community around
1: now the, the third stage i i want to throw this one to you in 80th journey in life because it's part of the stage of becoming and you call it creating a new narrative if you think of yourself as a woman growing up in venezuela coming to new york eventually ending up in miami married divorced adult son, very accomplished person. So on the surface, we might say she has it all together, right? But if you think of your journey to getting to where you are now and you have this extraordinary book coming out, what are some ways in which you had to change your narrative for yourself so you could end up where you are today?
0: Thank you for another question. I'll give you one example that I had to change the narrative. One of the challenging things that I had to face was coming from a very conservative conservative and traditional community that was very supportive back in Venezuela, and then going through the journey of being an immigrant that felt a lot of rejection, maybe as a Latina, or maybe, you know, rejection about, you know, not uh, learning about a new culture. And then being a divorced person in that conservative community was not very well liked or accepted at first. And I had to like, almost like redefine my identity about who I was. So am I Venezuelan? Am I Jewish? Am I Latina? Am I New Yorker? Am I, and, and it changed in every, am I a refugee? You know, I was applying for a political asylum because I had to, I couldn't go back to Venezuela at some point. So, all these things kept redefining my identity and like where, who I was and where I was and how I understand myself. And it wasn't an easy thing to do. I cannot, I, I'm not going to say this was like the most traumatic experience that anybody can have in life. No, but it pushed me to redefine my story, to rewrite my story, to really look at my belief system and understand what what is in, what is not, what I'm willing to take in, what I'm not, and how to go through this journey and integrate all the good and all the bad within me. You know, that's that was like, that's that that fourth stage of integration. It's like, okay, I am who I am now, but with everything else that happened with me, including the story of war, because I can tell you, it's not just what happened to me in my experiences, but what I who I am in terms of my epigenetics. And that's a very exciting concept that I bring into the book as well.
1: Well, where my mind is going as you're talking, I can only say this because we know each other well, in the spirit of integration, you know, my partner, David, I, my partner is a very successful attorney, real estate lawyer. And when I was 25, 30 years younger, having a a lawyer partner would have been my idea of hell on earth. Like that just, that just, (laughs) that just wasn't part of my narrative. Right. Now, ironically, <laughs> post-divorce, I, what I love about you described the artist in you, and you you had a relationship for a while with a wonderful, gifted artist who did amazing work. So I think part of our integrations, you and me together, is we ended up for a while with partners. I'm with mine, you've moved on, who are a form of integration in our lives, right? Of something that maybe we want to integrate. We couldn't integrate before. It didn't fit an old story, but it fits the story, right?
0: Absolutely.
1: absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad and that yeah, made you laugh. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's super. That's super interesting also that you're putting it that way because yeah, I agree with you. I didn't think of it that way, but yes, this that's a perfect example of integration of saying, okay, I'm, I'm rewriting the stories over yeah. and over. And also my understanding of what the joy of life is and the pleasure of life and the permission to have fun and to enjoy because I didn't get that so clearly given being a second generation Holocaust survivor. It was more like, you know, being completely happy or completely joyful. eh, You have to be careful because there's so much sadness around so much heaviness around that it's like, how much are you allowing yourself to enjoy and to have fun and to be part of life like that?
1: Let's go a little deeper with that one, because you and I have a both have a wonderful friend named Luis Gallardo. He is the founder of the World Happiness Foundation. He is connected to a lot of happiness researchers and thinkers. You're on the board of that organization. And, you know, one thing we've all heard is, well, you can't be happy all the time or almost like it's wrong to celebrate happiness. And in my mind, I'm connecting it to post-traumatic growth because the narratives around happiness are so limiting already. Based on your involvement around involvement with that community and what you know about post-traumatic growth is, what are some ways in which you want to invite people to think about joy and happiness, perhaps differently from the way they have in the past?
0: Yeah. You know that happiness, I don't know if you encounter this, but sometimes when we use the word happiness, people take it as superficial. It's like, oh, Uh you have to be laughing, you know, joyful all the time. I don't think that really what happiness is is that being having a smile all day long and having this bypass of like yes everything is great and wonderful and positive I don't think that's what it is I think there's something so much deeper about the way you experience life and how you are you know that being the way you are being in every moment in your life that you can only acquire through consciousness into being aware yeah. to of who you are I think being the happiness being in happiness or that being happiness has more to do with being grateful than with anything else it's like how you are appreciating your life at every moment how you're being conscious of your life at every moment how are you facing situations relationships events life at every moment how are you are giving yourself at every moment and that can be sometimes with tears And that can be sometimes with laughter, but that doesn't mean that you have to be constantly uh, having fun. So even in moments of of extreme sadness and difficulty, having that um, wholeness within you, that, that has more to do with happiness, having that consciousness within you. I mean, you know we have the big gurus in our lives and and people that have acquired and that have are at that stage that are uh, beautiful examples. That, you know that are like Lama and other people that are really beautiful examples of like you no know, Mandela. No matter how difficult things get, you know having those that attitude. I mean I always give the example of Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl was a um, Viennese psychiatrist, survivor of concentration camps and Holocaust survivor, and he really turned this experience into an amazing approach to psychology and psychiatry called logotherapy. And he wrote a book called in search for meaning. And he said, even in the darkest of the darkest places, looking for meaning in life, searching for your purpose in life, for having meaning, in everything that happens, that can be happiness. That's it's a crazy thing to think like in the middle of so much sadness, you can still hold that moment of meaningful, happy, conscious place.
1: You tell some really wonderful stories in your book. And if people who you have known personally, who you have worked with, who had a um, undeniably big trauma experience and that have been able to find their way to post-traumatic growth, I think it might be wonderful for our listeners to just hear one example that's uh from your own life, somebody's story that you're willing to share with us?
0: Yeah. Mm, You know, let me use the example of a couple. I'm going to tell you two stories, but one is a couple that I saw Mm -hmm. that when the pandemic started and they had to be confined in the home together with their four children, some of them older than others, they were going crazy with each other on top of each other's lives. They were not used to spending so much time together, but their phones were on display for everybody to see, you know, because you are coexisting 24 seven with everybody. And the wife happened to see messages in the husband's phone that that were related to infidelity. And this couple came to me on an emergency, you know, like what are we going to do with our lives? Our, Our family life has is falling apart. We are no longer a family. You know, this is this is over. Everything is really that they were destroyed. And they were so open and willing to do the work. They were able to go through this transformation as a couple and as a family. I ended up seeing, you know, the couple together and then each of the kids and then everybody together and have a family meeting and have couples, you know, sessions in which they really work through their belief system. They work through their past traumatic experiences each of them themselves mm. going through difficulty as one of them you know the husband was a, a child of poverty and like abandonment and then the the wife was going through a very difficult you know abuse at home and all of that spoke to the relationship of the couple at the end of uh, of the work that we did together this couple was unrecognizable it was they really took that infidelity and that mistrust and that pain and suffering that they had and they really took that opportunity to say you know what let's revisit who we are let's see who we are not only as a couple but as human beings as parents each of their kids was transformed into the experience of the parents because they saw what was happening they were all at home and they saw what was going on and they went through the through the pain and the suffering and they they saw how the parents came out on the other side in the chat connected Intimate way where the communication opened up, when the trust opened up, when the true conversations were happening. That this is a perfect example of post-traumatic growth because what happens in post-traumatic growth is that you have so much more appreciation of life, you have your relationships are so much more intimate and meaningful. You have a more spiritual connection, knowing that, you know, there's something bigger than yourself. It's not necessarily religious, but like a more connected way of being. And you are in deep gratitude of who you are. And then you're able to teach this to other people as well, you know? So it's, it's beautiful to see that change. And I wanted to give an example of a couple because this is not just a one person thing. It can be two people or it can be a whole collective group. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. Because both you and I live uh, in the Miami area, and a few years ago there was this very traumatic event in Surfside, where which is a, if people who know Miami, it's just just outside of Miami, it's an oceanfront community, and and it was well documented all over the world. This condo tower collapsed, and a lot of people died instantly. That's an undeniably traumatic event when when your home collapses and people die. And you were one of the people who were there on the scene helping survivors. You have a lot of experience working with this, but can you give us a snapshot of, and I'm relating it to, to your second stage, you know, safety and having somebody to talk to but what was that like for you, if you could share some impressions of walking into a majorly traumatic event by anybody's standards and you're the voice who goes in there to be of
0: help? It only happened a year and a half ago, believe it or not. Wow. Something interesting you know, that we're talking about specifically at this time is that because of the, the earthquake that happened in Turkey, in which more than 5,000 people have died, yeah. Just the scene of the buildings collapsing has triggered so many of my patients that you can't even imagine. So it's like layers after layers of trauma that are there and that you never would think that whatever is happening in Turkey is affecting people in Miami. So something to think about, you know, like how this butterfly effect, like whatever happens in one corner of the world is affecting people on the other side in deep ways and that's why showing up for my community and for the community was so important to me because it touched me in so many levels I had friends there childhood friends that lost their children which is I can't even begin to tell you how painful that is I had uh, community members uh, that lost their parents spouses families I had friends and acquaintances and even people that I didn't know that were affected in so many ways so One of the amazing things I saw was how community organized itself to be a space for safety and protection that happened during three weeks or more in which there was a contained contained space nearby in which we would meet, meaning the families, the survivors, the first responders, the firemen, the police, all of us twice a day every day in the morning and in the afternoon to check with each other, to keep up with the information, to see how things were going. And that provided the families with such a space to cry, to complain, to be angry, to ask for help, to express how they were feeling, to not talk at all, to avoid like everything and anything you can imagine happened there. But we were all together doing it. And that was really a gift very, very grateful that this community this community, organized itself in such a way. It had, it had a lot of resources in that way.
1: I love that phrase, the community organizing itself. And I, I have experiences from my own life, again, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I want to go, come to the present and and to take one, one glimpse at, at its future. But the present is, even before your book was published, you know, the interest is enormous. It's been sold to a whole bunch of other languages before it ever came out. So my feeling is that your life, Eddie, will change a little bit because of the response to the book. I have a hunch you're ready for it. But if you if you were to articulate some ways in which you're open to change or would like you to change or you would you like to see happen, like, what's in your thoughts?
0: <laughs> My wish come true is that, and I'm I'm always grateful, even just to be able to have written this book. Wow, I can't even tell you, Akim, how grateful I am. I'm deeply grateful that I that I've been able to do this because I want. I've it's, this book has been sitting with me for 25 years. I, yeah. It finally came out. These are not new things for me or new concepts for me. It just it just it, it was the timing was now. I would like for this message to be spread to the whole world. And if I have a chance or I know I'm going to have a chance to be t- spreading this message, to be like the the messenger in some way, to talk about growth, to talk about the hope on the other side of so you know difficult experiences, to let, tell people, yes, there's other ways. You don't, you know, trauma is not a life sentence that you can come out. You can be even better. You can even grow more. You can transform from this. You can do amazing things. And that is, uh, you know, the message I want to keep giving everywhere all over the world. And hopefully I know I'm going to have a chance to do that. And not by myself, but yeah. with everybody else that is with me that keeps loving this. And I have so many people, including you, Ahim, yeah. that it's, you know... My, the team and the people around this beautiful work. And we do it in so many ways, you know, and it's little things here and there, like having the World Happiness Fest, having a conference on psychedelics, you know, which I was last week and we were talking about transformation with psychedelics, you know, having a pilgrimage in uh, Portugal, which I might do in a couple of months. Like in every place, you you know, you plant the seeds and you talk about it in so many different ways, you know, just to keep everybody joining in this growth and evolution. So (laughs) that's what I want to do.
1: I'm with you, my friend. (laughs) So excited about the book. It's really extraordinary. The Unexpected Gift of Trauma. People can find it everywhere. But if people want to learn more about you and your work as a psychologist, do you have a website? Where should people go to learn more about your work?
0: Yeah. So please, please, please go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. or wherever you want to go, buy the book. And put a review because I really want to know what you think about it. You can call me, text me, write to me. Let me know what you think. Give me feedback. I'm always open to talking about it. I love that. And you can find me on Instagram, Dr. Edith Shiro, on Facebook, Dr. Edith Shiro, or my website, www.dredithshiro.com. And it's dr.edithshiro. So you can find me or call him and he'll tell you where (laughs) I (laughs) am. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm excited about the book and about your personal journey ahead and the message you're spreading to the world. So thank you for you.
0: Thank you again for the work that you do. Thank you for everything that you've done in your life, that it, you're such an inspiration for me. And you know, I always tell you this, you are such an inspiration, such an example of life. I always look up to you, to all the wonderful things that you become and that you keep doing and that you keep keep going in ways that are like amazing and more amazing. So, Thank you so much for this space. Thank you.
1: Thank you, <laughs> Like what you heard? Please go to my And subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us. Give us a review. And let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.